Hello and welcome to episode six of the Axles in the Attic podcast series. There's good news and bad news. The good news is that we're going to be looking at an incredibly interesting and important figure in figure skating history in this episode. And the bad news is that it's going to be the last episode. So I hope that we save the best for last. And we have Allison Manley back, so of course we have. Hi, I'm good, Ryan. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Well, well, let's let's not say last. Let's say you know we'll meet again. How's that? We'll meet again. We'll definitely meet again. Meet again. (laughs) Yes. Who are we learning about today, Ryan? Today we are going to learn about uh, a very important figure in Canadian skating history, and that's Louis Rubenstein and. For those that aren't familiar, he's considered to be the grandfather of Canadian skating as he played such an important role in developing the sport here in Canada. So um, I I really think you're going to find his story both fascinating and certainly pretty um, inspiring as well. Well, let's get started then. Born September 23rd, 1861 in Montreal, Quebec, Louis Rubenstein went on to undoubtedly become one of the most influential and important figure skating pioneers. His parents, Max and Leah Rubenstein, had emigrated to Canada from Poland 11 years before his birth and were one of only roughly 200 Jewish families living in the city at that time. Rubenstein's first introduction to the sport came in 1864 when Jackson Haynes came to the city to give his final North American performance before heading to Europe to spread the gospel of skating over there. He would have been only three years old at the time. So inspired by Haynes, Rubenstein took to the ice and soon joined the highly esteemed Victoria Skating Club and skated alongside his brothers, Abraham and Moses. You might say that the success that was honed by Rubenstein and his brothers was a biblical proportions. Sorry to be funny there, but I couldn't resist. Um, and as a teenager, he actually traveled to Vienna to train under Haynes for a spell. And when returning, took lessons from one master and, like Haynes, spread the word to the masses of Montreal. Wow. He just got it, – it's like a virus skating, right? Like it gets under people's skin and they spread it around. <laughs> they do. But, I mean, I think like Hain- Jackson Haynes, he was – he was the be-all, end-all at that point, pioneer and pioneer in the sport as well. And I think it's mm-hmm. like, you know, if you saw, if you saw John Curry or Janet Lynn or um, Dorothy Hamill or something, when you were three, you probably, you know, and then you went to go train un- under them as a coach as a teenager. I think you'd be coming back and spreading the gospel too. Not everybody gets fair to enough. do that. <laughs> fair, fair enough. Okay, I, I, yeah. I understand that argument. <laughs> Well, although he was quite well-respected by his peers for his excellence in school figures, he lost by exactly 100 points in his first recorded competitive appearance in 1879 to older competitors, Messrs. Pereira and Barlow. He rebounded to win his city's championships and in 1883 won his first unofficial Canadian title. It was unofficial because there was no official national governing body of skating regulating competitions just yet, but we'll get to that later. And that competition was at his home rink. 
As early as the following year, Rubenstein was invited to participate in a series of exhibitions and competitions in Atlantic Canada, including stops in St. John, Bathurst, Chatham, Moncton, and Halifax. A poster advertising his 1884 appearance in St. Stephen, New Brunswick, described his appearance as the event of the season. Rubenstein held court at the national competition in Canada for seven consecutive years in the 1880s and also garnered considerable attention at the Montreal Winter Carnival, of which skating was an important component. He won five North American titles as well, starting in 1885 and two U.S. championships. U.S. championships? That's crazy. In 19, yeah. or, sorry, in 1888 and 1889. His travels during that decade took him everywhere, from New York to Detroit to Vermont to Ontario. So, speaking of the U.S. titles, he wasn't the only one to do that. I so, know. I think... I know. The first U.S. pairs title actually went to the Canadian couple as well. So we came down and won all your titles, and you didn't come up and win ours. So just putting that out there. Well, I think we had a couple people win, you know, some North American titles at least. Maybe not Canadian ones. but Yeah, North American ones definitely. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So how did he find the time to do it all? Although Rubenstein was a partner in the family business, which was a silver, gold, and nickel, plating and manufacturing firm. It appears his role might have been more on paper than in getting hands-on as he would have required significant time to travel in the winters from event to event for weeks or months at a time. He was a bachelor, though, very much married to his work on the ice, and he was lauded as North America's best skater in newspapers everywhere. Amazing. But why settle for just the best in North America? By the end of the 1880s, Rubenstein was eager to take on the rest of the world. Kevin B. Walmsley and Don Morrow's excellent book called Sport in Canada, A History offers a great explanation of just how Rubenstein came to compete against the world's best. When news of the St. Petersburg, Russia World Championships staged to commemorate the 25th anniversary of the St. Petersburg Skating Club, reached Montreal in mid-December 1889, the choice of the most appropriate and deserving representative to be sent by the Amateur Skating Association of Canada was a foregone conclusion. $400 was raised to defray Rubenstein's expenses. And in early January 1890, he boarded the Cunard Royal Mail steamer Etruria in New York, carrying letters of introduction from Canada's Governor General, Lord Stanley, to the Foreign Office and the British Ambassador in St. Petersburg. Ooh, it's fancy stuff, Ryan. Fancy, fancy. Well, (laughs) knowing full well that under the Tsarist rule in Russia, anti-Semitism was alive and thriving, Rubenstein wasn't exactly expected, wasn't exactly expecting to be welcomed with open arms when he arrived in Russia. Shades of gay Sochi's, of sorry, shades of gay skaters in Sochi, anyone? I know, right? So, <laughs> I know. So, what he was walking into was such a mess that even on December 30th, 1889, in that edition of the Montreal Gazette, written prior to his departure, it was written that our skaters can now wait confidently for the cablegram that shall inform us that the redoubtable Louis 
has either carried off the championship in triumph or is snugly incarcerated in the Trubotskoy Bastion. <laughs> yeah, so they have a lot of really confidence is, there as the hell else we go. Sorry. And there, and there really isn't an in-between, right? He's either going to win or he's going to be in jail. <laughs> yes. Well, although the voyage over the Atlantic was smooth sailing, what happened when he arrived wasn't. He checked into the Grand Hotel d'Europe. He checked into the Grand Hotel d'Europe, and within a few days found himself summoned to the cop shop. He was interrogated and asked if he was Jewish. Responding yes, his passport was seized, but he was released. Returning to practice, he was hauled back into another police station days later and told to leave the country within 24 hours. The given reason? We cannot permit Jews to remain in St. Petersburg. Rubenstein pled his case to the British ambassador, Sir Robert Morier, who returned his passport with the words British subject crossed out and replaced with L. Rubenstein, Jew. He was advised to compete in the world championships, but leave the country immediately thereafter. Oh, gosh, what a welcome. I know, what a welcome. So, Skatey did, in front of the members of the very emperor who opposed him, Alexander III, and his court. The competition, which included school figures, special figures, and a free skating performance that was, according to David Young's The Golden Age of Canadian Figure Skating, limited to 10 minutes. He was, uh, and the event was won by that very outcast from Canada. In winning, he defeated skaters from Austria, Sweden, Norway, Finland, and Russia. Rubenstein explained his experience in letters home that were published in the Montreal newspapers. And in his words, instead of what we call our list in Canada, there are three separate competitions in Russia. The real figure skating, or what we call skating, goes under the name Diagram Skating in Russia. There are two other departments, Special Figures and Specialties, and in these there is a tendency to acrobatic work, which would not be recognized as fine skating in Canada. Safely returning home to Montreal by way of New York, Rubenstein retired from the sport in 1892 after capping off his career with another U.S. title for good measure. (laughs) And I'm, I'm curious... Very curious as to a tendency to acrobatic work. Surely there must be some Russian texts that explain exactly what that was. I'm, I'm hoping you'll dig that up for a future blog. I've got something on Russian skating history that will be coming along. Not right oh, away, good. but it will be coming along. Yeah. Of course you do. Why did I even question it? Well, every bit as important to his on-ice contributions to skating were Rubenstein's off-ice contributions. He was made Honorary Secretary of the Amateur Skating Association of Canada and would later serve as its president. He was instrumental in forming the International Skating Union of America as well and also also presided over that organization, which is just incredible if you ask me. And if you think his story ends there, guess again, sweetie. During the summers that he was competing as a skater, he was, this sounds like Lottie Dodd again, doesn't it? Um, He was an (laughs) avid and quite successful cyclist. (laughs) He became the president of the Canadian Wheelman's Association for 18 years and was the man behind the success of the 1899 World Bicycle Meet, 
which was awarded to Montreal. He bowled, played billiards, curled, and was president of the Canadian Bowling Association, Montreal Athletic Commission, the Montreal branch of the Royal Life Skating Society, Montreal Amateur Athletic Association, and Young Men's Hebrew Association. He was even a city alderman for 17 years. He undertook the sale of the family business in 1929, and it remains in operation today. How this man found time to sleep is beyond me, uh, and posthumously, uh, Rubenstein was recognized by inductions into the Canadian Sports Hall of Fame, Jewish Sports Hall of Fame in Israel, World Figure Skating Hall of Fame, and Skate Canada Hall of Fame. Wow. <laughs> That's a lot of accolades. A lot of accolades. Well, a 2004 article from the Canadian Jewish News additionally offers that he was a populist politician who took an interest in the welfare of the poor. His decision to establish the Rubenstein Bath was of no small importance to poverty-stricken Montrealers who lacked something so basic as running water. It's pretty incredible. So, I mean, he obviously did a lot for the community. I mean, even just looking at the organizations he was involved in, he was working with youth, he was helping the poor, he was helping develop yeah. support. So, honestly, sounds like a pretty cool guy, if you ask me. Sounds, I agree. A keen politician, Rubenstein actually sometimes filled in as mayor. His funeral attracted thousands of mourners. Several years after his passing, a group of well-heeled Montrealers raised about $2,000, which was no insignificant sum during the Depression, for a fountain in his memory. And it was finally erected in 1937. And the fountain is the only public monument in Montreal and perhaps in Quebec honoring a Jewish person. Is that still true to this day, or is that still from... that? That would have been at the time. That was in two, but that was a, that was in two thousand and four, and I, I would assume that the Canadian Jewish News would be a pretty, you know, a pretty good authority. So I don't know. I should look into that because if that, if if that's the case, that doesn't seem right. It sure doesn't. Well, his death on January third, nineteen thirty one, marked the end of an era and the beginning of another. Only two years later, in August nineteen thirty three. The Christie Pitts riot broke out in a Toronto playground after a baseball game six months after Adolf Hitler took power in Germany. An account in the Toronto Star describes the event. While groups of Jewish and Gentile youths wielded fists and clubs in a series of violent scraps for possession of a white flag bearing a swastika symbol at Willow Vale Park last night, a crowd of more than 10,000 citizens, excited by cries of Heil Hitler, became suddenly a disorderly mob and surged wildly about the park and surrounding streets, trying to gain a view of the actual combatants, which soon developed in violence and intensity of racial feeling into one of the worst free-for-alls ever seen in the city. Scores were injured, many requiring medical and hospital attention. Heads were opened, eyes blackened, and bodies thumped and battered as literally dozens of persons, young or old, many of them non-combatant spectators were injured more or less seriously by a variety of ugly weapons in the hands of wild-eyed and irresponsible young hoodlums, both Jewish and Gentile. Yeesh, Ryan. Sounds horrible. I know. I know. And 
Less than a decade later, young Jewish diarist and skater Anne Frank would face her end in the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp during the Holocaust. And Rubenstein's work in fostering a better sporting world would not be for naught, though. At the fountain in his honor in Fletcher's Field in Montreal, the water still flows. The water reminds one of Rubenstein's resolve in life to flow on. Despite the hate that he himself experienced in his trip to Russia, he wasn't phased. I think that in this world, as in the skating community, um, even today, there is still discrimination that goes on, whether it's silent or, or vocal. And I, I think what happened um, with, with Russia hosting the Sochi Olympics was a fine example of that. Um, I think that there's still discrimination based on um, race, color, sexual orientation. And what amazes me is that this wonderful role model from back in the 19th century wasn't phased by skating in front of a whole group of people that didn't want him there, that didn't want to, want him to succeed, that that made him unwelcome and asked him to leave their country. And I think it's absolutely beautiful that he pressed on and he did what he loved and he shared his gift and made the world better for a generation and generations to come. So Louis Rubenstein, what a role model. What a role model indeed. Thank you so much for writing up this story so that we could share it with everybody, Ryan. And I hope Oh, you are so welcome. And I hope all the listeners have really enjoyed this series. If you do like it, let us know and maybe we'll do some more. That's why I'm not willing to necessarily say it's the end. We'll just have to see. But Axel's in the attic. (laughs) Sounds good to me too. Axel's in the attic. Uh, was created by myself, Allison Manley of manlywoman.com, and... That would be me, Ryan Stevens from SkateGuard, which is skateguard1.blogspot.ca. And we thank you so much for listening and for your support. And we hope that you learned a thing or two along the way, because we know that we did as well. So happy skating, happy reading, happy listening, and thanks so much.